Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. That is the sound across the United Kingdom this morning, actually, within the last hour. 96 rounds of gun salutes at locations all over the UK. And that is 96 rounds, one for every year of Queen Elizabeth's life. Various locations have been doing that as a tribute to Her Late Majesty this morning. It is just part of the official mourning process, which is now underway, not just here, not just in the UK, I should say, but also here in Canada, as the government here has declared Canada to also be in an official period of mourning. Lots of tributes coming in. And, you know, as somebody who's been really closely kind of following along with what's happening, it's the stories that are so fascinating. Everybody has, it feels like, uh, an anecdote or a tribute to the late queen that is really is, is really just so interesting to hear. And we're going to you know go through some of what is happening today too. But many, obviously, people who met the Queen are speaking about her. For instance, former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who is still an MP there, uh, he was speaking in their House of Commons. And he recalls choking up when asked to talk about the Queen in the past tense. He paid tribute to her in the House of Commons this morning. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I hope the House will not mind if I begin with a personal confession. A few months ago, the BBC came to see me to talk about Her Majesty the Queen, and we sat down and the cameras started rolling, and they requested that I should talk about her in the past tense. And I'm afraid I simply choked up, and I couldn't go on. I'm really not easily moved to tears. But I was so overcome with sadness that I had to ask them to go away. And I know that today there are countless people in this country and around the world who have experienced the same sudden access of unexpected emotion. And I think millions of us are trying to understand why we are feeling this deep and personal and almost familial sense of loss. Perhaps it's partly that she's always been there, a changeless human reference point in British life. The person who, all the surveys say, appears most often in our dreams. So unvarying in her pole star radiance that we have perhaps been lulled into thinking that she might be in some way eternal. But I think our shock is keener today because we are coming to understand in her death, the full magnitude 
of what she did for us all. That is the former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking in the House of Commons today. He is, of course, still an MP, and it was only earlier this week that he met with the Queen for the last time before handing things over to his successor, Liz Truss. That is just one of the remembrances that have have been quite moving to listen to. One of the other ones, too, that really struck me is the former Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Obviously, Australia, also a member of the Commonwealth, but there was some time where Australia was campaigning to become a republic, to no longer have the queen, uh, no longer have the monarchy as head of state. And in fact, Malcolm Turnbull was the leading politician in that effort. And yet uh, he also, though, had very fond remembrances of the queen and talked about what a remarkable person she was. Have a listen. When we saw, met the Queen on that occasion, she gave us uh, um, a portrait of herself, the official portrait of herself and Prince Philip in some boxes, you know, which I'm sure they give to every Prime Minister. And, um, and she said, um, with a wry smile, she said, here you are, you can put them in a cupboard, I suppose. <laughs> And which was charming and funny. And uh, last night, as we were filled with such dread, because it was obvious that things would turn very bad, I took the portrait of the Queen out and set it up. And we just thought, what an amazing life. What amazing leadership. And it is the end of an era. And let's hope that the future after the Queen's passing is one where we will have leadership as dedicated and selfless as she has shown. Now, that story really, for some reason, really hit home for me. Let me actually tell you why. That is the former Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, talking about the time in Australia's history not that long ago, within the last couple of decades, where they were campaigning to actually become a republic, to remove the Queen as head of state. And so it was during that time that he met her, that that story happened. And so she knew what he was doing and she knew what Australia was considering, which is removing her as head of state. And she still quite charmingly said to him as she gave him a portrait, well, I suppose you could put that in a closet if you would like. And yet that was her way, right, to charm people no matter how difficult the circumstances were, no matter how awkward personally that might have been for her. It was still her way to smooth things over and be charming. And he had an excellent point at the end there where he said, we need more of that in this day and age when people are so quick to argue with each other that it is so it is it is so her way or was so her way to to make things more approachable to make things more comfortable for people. That was what she did. And I think that's really what I admired so much in hearing these stories about her. Also, last night in Toronto, actually, Elton John was performing in concert. And, of course, he had something to say about the death of, of Queen Elizabeth. But, of course, you know, today we had the saddest news about the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. And she was an inspiring presence to be around and I've been around her and she was fantastic. And she led the country through some of our greatest and darkest moments with grace, decency, and a genuine caring warmth. I'm, you know, Stemley Five, she's been with me all my life. And I feel very sad that she won't be with me anymore. 
But I'm glad she's at peace, and I'm glad she's at rest. And she deserves it. She's worked bloody hard. I send my love to her family and her loved ones, and she will be missed. But her spirit lives on, and we celebrate her life tonight with music, okay? That's Elton John speaking uh, in concert last night in Toronto. 75 years old, he said, and uh, she had been with him all his life. Now, we're still waiting for further details on what the funeral will be like, but here is Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief, on what we know so far. Because of when the Queen uh, officially passed and the confirmation was given, it was a little bit, uh, it has shifted things a little bit. So some of the days are being combined, but today is really being considered the first day or, or D-Day, as it, it is being called here. Uh, so we expect to hear from King Charles III. That is going to happen. And then some of the other tributes are being combined. Like normally we would have heard from members of Parliament tomorrow, but of course those tributes today. Uh, and it is the schedule's changed a little bit, but we are waiting for official confirmation. It appears the funeral will happen on Monday, September 18th, but we are officially waiting for confirmation on that day. So uh, everything will proceed over the next 11 days, and you will continue to see this nation really in mourning and so many tributes. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning, in about three hours' time, King Charles III will address the public for the first time since officially becoming king upon the passing of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. It will be a momentous uh, moment in the history of the monarchy, something we haven't seen for 70 years. To talk more about that and also to talk about the monarchy moving forward now, we're joined now by Monique Offenay-Miller, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the South Saskatchewan Monarchist League. Monique, Monique, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's been quite the 24 hours at this point. What do you think of what you have seen so far in the terms of the response to what has happened? Well, this is a response that we have seen in the past. As you mentioned, 70 years previous, Her Majesty ascended to the throne and there was remorse and and mourning that happened. This type of sequencing of events is something that's been planned out, unfortunately, for decades. But that means that Her Majesty was actually an active participant in making sure that the next steps are going to happen. The speech that you'll see King Charles III making today has been planned for quite some time. What hasn't been planned is just exactly how the public might react. And we are seeing that a very warm reception, very much uh, as nations, not just as the United Kingdom, but as ours as well, being part of the Commonwealth. We have appropriate and very respectful mourning happening here in Canada. Do you think, is this a key moment, do you think, for the monarchy, the British monarchy? Well, I believe it's a historic moment. It's one that for the majority of uh, our population has never seen a change in the uh, in the head of state as such as we're seeing today. And it is uh, something that, of course, there are many questions that come out of this. How might King Charles III lead differently? What would look different? And 
at this time, we know that in Canada, uh, perhaps uh, not much will be seen differently, except for those symbols that we see throughout, which represent the crown. We have that on our money. We have that within our airports, within our government offices. The portraits will be changed, of course, but there's no legislation stating how fast that has to happen. Here in Canada, many of the oaths of our military, uh, those state that it is to queen, country, and the heirs of the monarchy. So there is no reason to say that we have to have a large change right away. It gives us time as a as a nation to understand how this impacts us. And I believe that as individuals, people may see that just how much Her Majesty was integrated into our society. Well, 70 years is such a long time to have that person being there, just ubiquitous, right? Always being there. Is that the challenge, do you think, now for King Charles moving forward is how to how to approach that kind of same that same place that the Queen had with people? Well, he will have the challenge that there is a legacy and a very welcomed legacy. And of course, anyone on their first days of work, and this is very uh, horrible to say, but this is his first day of work. And he does not have time, uh, like the rest of uh, the nation here that has lost their parent, to have any time for mourning. Um, He has his right to work. But it is important that uh, people do give him the grace understanding that although he may have been at her side, having what Her Majesty was saying is is a bit of a, a training uh, time, it, it, Her Majesty did not have that with her, her father. However, it is important that we uh, give that patience to uh, King Charles III as he begins his reign. It will be the importance and his responsibility to make sure the legacy of Her Majesty, that of of grace, of a kindness, of being accessible to people and listening um, is something that is still available. And I guess this has happened before, hasn't it, Monique? Like with the transition from King George VI to Queen Elizabeth, the, the king, the previous king, had been so deeply ingrained in the British public because of his service during World War II, and he was seen as 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 being so supportive and part of the community at that time. That must have also been a difficult transition. There is no doubt. Uh, Her Majesty did speak of that and the fact that there was expectation of her and her position, the pressures that are placed on those individuals as head of state to just understand the matters of the day. Of course, not delving into the politics of the day, but understanding their role as the head of state, that of an accountability partner for any elected democratic group. And that's the important piece here is that Stability is something that has been shook. However, I would I would state that that's the way the public may be seeing it. Stability still exists through the system of the crown, regardless of the individual at the head of state. It's important to see that uh, there is a succession. It is a circle. It is a circle of knowledge, and there has been knowledge sharing throughout the generations of the royal family. So I believe we will see a family unit come together in a way that we have not seen in the past. And how has that preparation been going on? How, what, have been, what has it been like trying to get uh, this king ready to assume that mantle? Has it been a, a lifetime of training? Well, I can speculate, of course, being an observer as part of the Monarchist League. I'm not an insider. There are things that I can imagine that the public would never understand, would never see, and it would not be in the limelight. And that is... Of course, the importance of training, of understanding the role. Um, The royal family is 
yes, groomed in a way. I don't know that that's the right word, but they are prepared for what is next. Uh, they know which uh, which number today uh, ha- Prince Harry found out he's fifth. Uh, so they always know the number of succession that right. they might be in. They have to be prepared at any moment to serve their country, to serve their commonwealth, and to serve those loyal um, those loyal subjects that they have taken oaths at birth as being part of this uh, family unit to make sure that they are able and available to support those people that they serve. And this is going to be a very different monarchy, as you pointed out, isn't it, Monique? Because uh, King Charles had a very different upbringing than previous monarchs have had. Uh, He was the first heir not educated at home first to earn a university degree, but also the first to kind of really grow up with this modern media glare, wasn't he? Well, that's correct. And I believe that the generations that are now here to, perhaps the word is judge him uh, for his performance, are the ones that have been exposed to that as well. Her Majesty was a different generation. There were different expectations in the family unit, in the society that we grew up in, and I'm very glad to see that Her Majesty was an active person in the evolution of what we now see as our rights and freedoms here uh, uh, have evolved. And that is great. As a country, we have a constitution that is our own, remembering that that was only signed in 1982 with Her Majesty's pen, as well as the then Prime Minister. This is something that Prince Charles was unique to in the fact that he grew up as these evolutions were happening. So we may see a more progressive conversation with King Charles III. We may see accessibility in a different way, something that, uh, again, we have, uh, he's been criticized for being more laid back. But when being laid back, sometimes you can hang your hat on tradition, but evolve within that tradition. Tradition is something to fall back on. It's not often something that we want to look at as a reason to be stagnated. And also the Queen's relationship with Canada is such an important one. Uh, she had quite a, a close relationship with several Canadian prime ministers too, didn't she? They spoke, they speak quite fondly of her. Yes, we see all the t- television um, memorial, in memoriams right now. And there are those interviews with prime ministers telling those candid stories about her sense of humour in fact, and how much she she may have been one of their favorite people, many of them have said. Um, and that also comes back to the, ma- the, the amount of grace that she had with those she met with, the understanding of the pressures that they may have been under. Um, although she was not in the same role as an elected official, she understood that world. That is something that... Uh, His Majesty, King Charles III, is going to be exposed to, although he might have already had some trainings in this, and uh, I imagine that these days will be more eye-opening for him as he is in that room with the red box on a weekly basis with the Prime Ministers, uh, the Prime Minister in, in England. But those concerts with the Prime Ministers of Canada are very special because they spoke about how much it meant to them to be able to speak to someone who understood their world. And Her Majesty is no longer there to hear them, but His Majesty is now there to hear them. So true. Uh, Thank you so much for your time this morning. 
It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Monique Ophine-Miller is the Chief Executive Officer of the South Saskatchewan Monarchist League, talking about the impact of the, the really historical significance of this moment, which we all know is so huge. But things are, you know, gradually going to change and we will get used to saying things like King Charles III, new titles for many members of the royal family. But a lot of questions about how this impacts Canada moving forward, too. This is Mornings with Simi. There has been a lot of talk about inflation relief for British Columbians, for Canadians. Uh, This week, we heard from the B.C. government about different measures that they are putting into place that they say will help provide some help and support. It was uh, tax credits. It was rent relief. But, you know, I I had some emails to me about that after we had talked about it on the show. A couple people pointing out, well, wait a minute, I'm a senior on a fixed income. What about me? How come we're not hearing any support specifically to help seniors. And I thought, you know what, that's a good question. To talk more about that now, we're joined by Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. Isabel, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning. What are you hearing from seniors about how they are feeling this inflation squeeze? Uh, Well, it's a timely question. We are just uh, concluding a report uh, that will come out, I think, in about a couple of weeks on on this very issue of economic hardship amongst seniors. And it might surprise uh, some people to learn that seniors actually have the lowest incomes in the province of any age cohort group. And what is quite interesting, Simi, is that about half the median income, which means half the people are earning less than that, the median income for seniors in this province is equal to uh, a minimum wage job. So, uh, and when we looked back on it, here, here was something that's very interesting. In the last five years, the minimum wage has increased by 40%, but seniors' pension income has only increased by 14%. Um, and there is this significant erosion, if you will, of the uh, the economic base of seniors that has been happening uh, over time. So yet, you know, governments talk a lot about helping Canadians, but they we don't really specifically hear about help for seniors, do we? Not really. Uh, now, some of the ways you would help seniors, I think, are different depending on a couple of factors. So whether a senior is a renter or owns a home, uh, there's different ways of, of being able to provide financial relief and where it is they need their financial relief. And their health status is the other area. So, you know, one of the things that people, I think, underappreciate is the degree to which costs related to health care Uh, start to become quite significant for many seniors as they get older, and they start to eclipse the costs that younger people are paying for things like childcare. Um, And it can can quickly add up against, as I say, these very, very modest incomes that seniors have. So what kind of supports can be offered? What, What kind of supports do they need? Well, it depends on their circumstances. So, you know, part of it is how how sufficient your income is depends on what your expenses are. So certainly the seniors who rent, uh, absolutely we need to find more rent relief for them than we get through the Shelter Aid for Elderly Renter Program, the SAFER program, they call it. Uh, it, it is significantly insufficient uh, in terms of meeting rental needs. And for seniors who are homeowners, we need to look at what is the mechanism that we can 
use their um, their home, if you will, uh, to be able to provide uh, some greater relief for their for their costs. And then we need to look at overall uh, these healthcare costs that people are paying that you and I don't think of as healthcare costs. We don't think it's a healthcare cost to have someone come and clean our house uh, until we can't do it ourselves anymore. And that cascades into a whole, you know, whether it's clearing the snow of drive, uh, the driveway of snow, pardon me, or uh, those kinds of things. And then the care um, that, you know, we think of as Canadians, oh, you know, our healthcare is free. But healthcare when you're 90 looks different than healthcare when you're 30. And a lot of what you need at 90 is not actually covered by uh, governments. And I guess a lot of that, you know, we talk about seniors having homes and being able to tap into that. But even that, it feels like, Isabel, might be a little bit more questionable now, given the the concerns about the real estate market. Well, yes. Now, I think we need to understand that uh, seniors are not becoming homeowners for the first time at the age of 65 or 75, right? I mean, people are either, when they enter retirement, they're either a renter or a homeowner. Uh, some people talk about, you know, people selling their house in retirement and renting. That does happen, but it's that doesn't happen as frequently as, as uh, many people think it does. Generally, you're a homeowner or you're a renter. Um, and I think... Uh, certainly any uh, seniors who have mortgages, uh, they're going to absolutely feel pressures around interest rates. Uh, But most seniors who are homeowners don't have a mortgage or they have a small mortgage. That trend amongst young seniors uh, is shifting a little bit, and that's a concern for the future. But it's more, uh, Simi, around how do we look at providing more income for low-income seniors, and how we do that when they're a renter might look different from how we do it if they're a homeowner, because no matter what the value of your home is, it isn't producing an income for you. So it doesn't help you to live in a $800,000 house or a million-dollar house in the Lower Mainland when you are one of the, you know, uh, 20, uh, 42%, pardon me, of seniors living on an income of $25,000. Um, it, it, it is it is difficult. So what would be your recommendation here? What do you want people to keep in mind, Isabel? I know you said you've got this report coming out in the next few weeks, but I guess is, is there a message here for government too? I think the message is, um, you know, don't forget about uh, low-income seniors. Their, their incomes are the lowest. And don't forget about the kinds of things that seniors are having to pay for uh, out of pocket that might be thought of as a choice when you're younger, but it's not a choice when you're older. Uh, you have to hire people to do things for you. Um, you you aren't able to, uh, you, you need help with some of your actual care needs. And those things are actually quite expensive for people in British Columbia. It's a good reminder too. Isabel, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate, talking about the financial squeeze right now. Inflation is really taking a toll. And we hear about all the different ways it's doing that. We talk about families. But what about seniors? Seniors are also being hit hard by this. Isabel says they have a, her office has a report coming out on this in the next couple of weeks. But we also don't get a lot of information from the government about all these you know, relief packages they're putting together. How would that help seniors? This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk real estate, shall we? Because the picture that we are hearing about is not a pretty one at this point. Sales of BC real estate are anticipated to end the year down more than 34%. Lots of factors went into that this year, not the least of which is the fact that rising interest rates have really put a squeeze on the market. So what about next year? Well, perhaps we're going to see that slide continue. Joining us now is Brendan Ogmanson, who's the BC Real Estate Association's chief economist. Brendan, thanks for being here. Good morning. Great to be here. How surprising are these numbers? We've kind of slowly seen this happening over the past year, haven't we? Yeah, the year started off pretty strong. Uh, obviously, we had a record year in 2021, and we had some momentum coming in 2022. All of that would just completely shifted once interest rates started rising in around February. And since then, we've had pretty weak sales uh, falling kind of below even what's which is like average uh, for, for a year and average for like this time of year. So kind of a tale of, of two halves, we have started off pretty strong and, and you know, really since those rate hikes, we uh, activity slowed substantially. Okay, so then when you crunch the numbers, what is selling, Brendan, and what is not? I guess, I mean, it's, it's always a mix of what's selling, but the, the things that are probably selling the least right now across the province are the types of housing that we saw really boom during the pandemic when people were looking for space. So that's large single family homes, mostly outside of of uh of vancouver uh so in you know the fraser valley and the island saw a lot of people in the interior saw a lot of people relocating uh to uh, to those areas to for more affordable space uh that demand is is not there as much given that prices in those areas went up really fast and and now, now with rates as high as they are it's just much harder for those sales to uh, to uh, to take place, so just there's there's not as much demand at those prices in these interest rates. So, larger single-family homes uh, in you know places like the Fraser Valley are, are selling at a much slower rate. Okay, so that's a real change of what we saw over the last couple of years. What yeah. is selling? What do people want then? What is what is selling? Um, so a, a lot of um, what is selling right now is more affordable product a- again. So. There's still going to be demand for anything that, you know, for especially anything that's sort of family suitable. So townhouses are still doing okay because they're a real substitute for more uh, or lesser affordable single family homes. Apartments are still selling really well because rents are really rising. So if you have, you know, investors looking for, for, um, uh, for an income property uh, like apartments, those are still selling pretty well. Um, but, you know, generally, you know, nothing's selling great, right? It, the market's pretty slow. Okay, so the market is slow overall, though. Is this causing a a rethink? Are realtors, do you think, also pulling listings from the market, Brendan? Because I seem to have noticed that, too, is that I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I know there was a bunch of stuff for sale here. Didn't all just sell suddenly. I think what we're we're seeing on the listing side, and and usually when when sales slow like they have, we get like a real accumulation of inventory. And it's interesting, the last couple months, we've actually seen inventory start to flatten out and even, even come down month over month in Vancouver. So we're still at pretty low levels of inventory. New listings are, are okay, but they're not at a pace that we would normally see if, if, uh, if sellers were really kind of anxious to, to move their property. So I think a lot of what we're seeing is sellers that maybe were thinking about selling uh, this year are looking at the market and just, and just deciding to hold off. Right. So is that what, we're in a holding pattern now, do you think? Like, what about 2023? I think things are kind of balancing out. We did have an adjustment in prices in Vancouver from about February to uh, to the midsummer, where you know the average price came down about ten percent, and now it's just flattening out. 
so we're not in that kind of frenzied period like we were in the, in the early part of the winter this year. I think that's what we're going to see uh, this year. We're going to have slow activity on sales. We're forecasting sales are still going to be kind of around the level they're at now over 2023. Uh, a little bit more inventory maybe means that prices are, are probably going to you know, be down slightly compared to this year. All right. So it's also part of the situation that we have to factor into is that some people who may have been considering selling, Brendan, maybe they don't want to because they think, well, I'm not I'm not going to get what I think my house is worth. Yeah, that's a, that's a big a big part of why inventory is starting to, to stall a little bit, because, you know, surprisingly, coming out of a pretty serious recession in 2020, uh, Canadian households are actually in really good financial shape. The unemployment rate in BC, although it took a little higher this morning, uh, is still really low. So we we don't have any kind of panic in the market that would see the you know, uh, the market be flooded by inventory. Uh, so you know, sellers have the ability to just just hold off. So what are you predicting then for 2023? So we're expecting 2023 for prices basically to flatten out where they are about now. But that does mean when we compare kind of the price level in 2023 to an elevated level at the start of 2000, or sorry, 2023 to this elevated level at the start of 2022, that price, the price level overall is going to be down by about 3% in the province, about 3 to 4% in Vancouver and Fraser Valley. All right. Another year to watch real estate, I guess. Brendan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Brendan Ogbenson, BC Real Estate Association Chief Economist, uh, talking about the way the market is shaping up. So what we saw in 2022 or what we have seen so far this year, uh, well, they're forecasting the year to end with sales down more than 34% year over year. So we know 2021 was just a crazy year when it came to real estate. Uh, couldn't really live up to that. It was just untenable. It looks like we're having that readjustment happening right now. So sales down this year more than 34%, and they're saying maybe down even more, another 5% perhaps uh, for the third quarter of this year and for 2023. Bit of a stalemate, it sounds like, uh, with real estate happening out there. So what have you seen happening in your neighborhood? Let me know, simi at cknw.com, or you can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. He mentioned the unemployment rate there. Uh, very quickly, yes, that number coming out this morning from Statistics Canada. Canada's unemployment rate ticked up just a little bit in the month of August to 5.4%. It's a little bit of relief. I know the market had been incredibly tight, uh, the labor market had, over the last few months. Uh, Economists think that at this point that may be showing that the interest rate hikes are kind of kicking in, having a a bit of an effect there. So 5.4% is Canada's unemployment rate. and Also, BC's ticked up just a little bit as well, too, uh, by 0.1%. So is that the interest rate hike kicking in? Are other things happening? Certainly give us a lot to talk about over the next little while, too. And again, weigh in with your thoughts as always. This is Mornings with Simi. 